Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Amen. Welcome to our study in the book of Acts. As today we look at Stephen, the deacon martyr. Stephen, the deacon martyr. And we're going to be looking at chapters 6, verse 8, through to chapter 7, verse 60, which is a lot of work. So we're going to try and get to it. Chapter 6, verse 10, it says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit which he, that is Stephen, spoke. And Lord, again, we just ask that you'd help us, Lord, not to be able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which you may speak to us today. For Jesus' sake, Lord. Last week we were introduced to a selected group of seven men who had been chosen. Chosen for the purpose of serving those who had been neglected, remember? This incident probably began a process that set in place Servants that we commonly call deacons. Order and structure. This contributed to the benefit of the early church and will contribute to the benefit of the modern day church. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, Based on what they did in implementing this order, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests which is a a big thing a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith as of now the spotlight will begin to shift its focus off the lives of John and particularly Peter onto who Stephen in this next chapter and then on to Philip in chapter 8. But <clears throat> also look out for the introduction of the main human character of the New Testament. Obviously, apart from the Lord Jesus, Paul the Apostle. You're going to meet him very briefly today, prior to his conversion. And we're going to see that as we look at Stephen's short but very, very effective life. Tertullian, who's one of the early church fathers, he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Okay, so chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Evidently, 
the apostles were not the only ones who performed signs and wonders. But as we said before, it was actually the work of the Spirit distributing to each one individually, not as we will, but as he wills. Verse 9 says, Then then there arose some from what is called a synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Cyrene, which is Libya. Alexandria, which is Egypt. Obviously, both of those places, Libya and Egypt, both North Africa. Asia. And those from where? Thank you, Cilicia. Cilicia, which is, and I'll highlight it because this is the place where Paul the Apostle came from. Cilicia. In Acts chapter 21, verse 39, it says, But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus, which is where? Cilicia. The text has given us a clue as to who is actually a part of this group that we're going to meet momentarily. And Cilicia, if you can see, the map's not the greatest in the world, but you can see where it is. It's actually modern-day southern Turkey. And you can see right there where Tarsus actually is. So Paul, knowing that he comes from this area and is possibly along with this group who are in this particular synagogue, again, which is highly likely, we can't say for sure, but it's highly likely, and he could have been one of these who actually we're going to find disputing with Stephen, particularly with reference to verse 9. We're going to try and qualify this a bit later. Well, whoever was there, verse 10 says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. He spoke with wisdom, or he spoke, as Proverbs Proverb says, he spoke skillfully. And he says, he spoke by the spirit. This has commonly been understood as the Holy Spirit, by which he evidently was aided. And to quote Albert Barnes, the commentator, it could also mean... The energy, fervor, power, and passion of Stephen. He evoked a spirit of zeal and sincerity which they could not withstand, which served more than mere argument could have done to convince them that he was right. The evidence of sincerity, honesty, and zeal in a public speaker will often go farther to convince the great mass of mankind than the most able argument if delivered in a cold and indifferent manner. He spoke by the power of the Spirit. And not just by what you heard, but by what you experienced and saw based on not just what he said, but the way that he communicated it. Verse 11, then, they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and check it, they came upon him and seized him 
and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. These men from the synagogue of the Libertines or the synagogue of the freed men, they seized and brought Stephen before, guess who? Our familiar friends in the Sanhedrin. It says they induced or they persuaded and provoked witnesses to testify against Stephen on four counts. One, with regard to Moses. Two, with regard to God. Three, the temple and its destruction. And four, the law and Old Testament customs. Verse 15 says, And all who sat in a council looked steadfastly at him, and they saw his face as the face of an angel. Now this is a difficult one. Two points. First of all, his expression was either one of divinely inspired peace, joy, sincerity, gravity, fearlessness, and confidence in God. That is, you could just look at him and you could tell that this guy was serious. I mean, what the angels look like. Angels, you don't get the impression that they're kind of happy-go-lucky, kind of backslapping. No, they're kind of serious because they're on a mission every time you see them, right? They're serious and they're sober, like when they went to get Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. So first of all, maybe the fact that his face looked like an angel could possibly be this first description. The second description is some commentators say that this is a reference to Stephen's face shining in the same way that Moses' face shone after he had spent time with God and came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Remember? His face was glowing. It was shining with a supernatural, supernatural visible splendor. I incline to the first view. For had the latter been the case, it would have awed the Sanhedrin and probably suspended their proceedings, right? That's a comment based on the people's New Testament. Okay, chapter 7, verse 1. Remember what we said about chapter divisions? Sometimes you have to ignore them because it breaks the thought block. This is continuing, even though it's a new chapter. Then the high priest said, you've got to remember that when you're doing your devotions, right? Sometimes we do our devotions, so I'm only going to read one chapter. And you read the chapter, you get to the chap- end of the chapter, you're like, oh. Either you really want to go on or you can't wait for the chapter to finish. But remember that sometimes the chapters, they transition. So chapter 7, verse 1, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? With regard to, obviously, the charges, and they're heavy, apparently, allegedly. They're heavy. The high priest says, Are these things so? Speaking to Stephen. Can you believe it? How did this come to this? I mean, this has now become a trial. 
It started off by being a, a witnessing opportunity. Now, Stephen, Stephen, not Peter, the great church leader, not John, the experienced apostle, is the deacon, the simple servant, Stephen, who hasn't got a website, he hasn't got any business cards, and he doesn't have a PA. This up until now, unknown Christian brother is on trial. And Stephen is given the opportunity to respond to the charges. And he said, verse 2, Brethren and fathers, listen, brethren or brothers, speaking to his peers, those in his own age category. He says, fathers, seniors, right? Referring to those who are older or elders. He says, brethren and fathers, how humble is Stephen? Addressing the council with the utmost respect. Listen, he says, appealing to them. Listen how the Lord uses this yielded vessel to respond to the charges, yet not defend himself, but he will make reference to five witnesses in defense of the truth of the word of God. And the five witnesses he calls on are Abraham, Joseph, Joseph, Moses, Solomon, and Isaiah. And what Stephen, this lowly disciple, is about to do is give these bigwigs a lesson in history. And he will particularly highlight, and I ask you to, to note this, he will particularly highlight the coming of deliverers. The coming of deliverers. Individuals who God sent to deliver who were never recognized the first time. But then they get recognized the second time. Never recognized the first time, but the second time around, especially by religious leaders. And particularly, we're going to see Joseph and Moses fulfill this role of deliverer particularly with, rec with reference to being types of Christ. Now, I hope that doesn't sound complicated. We're going to get to it. Individuals who would bring deliverance, rejected the first time but embraced the second time. Stephen is now going to respond to the four charges, and here comes the first witness to the stand, and it's Abraham. He says, listen to Abraham, verse 2. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, get out of your country. Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that God says, I will show you. Remember, Abraham originally came from Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern day Iraq. And the Lord says, get out of there. Get out from there and come to a different place. And then it says, he came out. 
Now, could this be, obviously I'm emphasizing certain aspects, could this be a subliminal message directed at these Jews, taken from the life of the very first Jew, Abraham, who was greatly challenged, greatly challenged to turn from something old, his old life worshipping idols, and turn toward something new. Could this be a subliminal message that Stephen is trying to communicate? Encouraging the council to leave everything that they were accustomed to. And verse 5, turn to something that was new. And look, God gave him no inheritance in it. Not even to set his foot on, but even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. This was a call from God to Abraham to walk by what? To walk by faith. Verse 6, it says, But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land. I mean, this is all future that God is communicating to Abraham, that your descendants, he ain't even got no kids, and his wife is old, and so is he. Yet God is talking about the future, and he's showing him something that isn't yet, but will be. That your descendants will dwell in a foreign land, that they would take that group, your group of descendants, and bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. I mean, God can afford to say this because he knows the end from the beginning. 400 years they're going to have them in bondage, verse 7. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And you know the story. Abraham believed God. He didn't do any works that justified him in the first instance. The fact that he was justified and made righteous was because he believed God. The works were just a byproduct of his faith, right? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Stephen's harping on something that we're going to come back to. Faith. Verse 8 then Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Did he give him circumcision before he believed or after he believed? After he believed. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Notice, Abraham, the father of the Jews, the father of all those who believe, the great example of faith. You religious leaders, you boast... In this man, Abraham. But you know nothing about Abraham. Abraham had no temple. He had no law. He had no circumcision at the beginning. He had none of these things that you say I am speaking against, says Stephen. But he did have something that you don't have. What he had was a personal relationship with God based on faith. He had everything that you don't have. You scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You do have a relationship with the temple. You do have a relationship with the law and with its ceremonies. But no relationship with God. God. 
Thank you, Father Abraham. You can now step down from the witness box. Where were we? The patriarchs. Verse 9. And the patriarchs becoming what? Envious. Sold Joseph into Egypt. The patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt. He progresses on from Abraham, right? And it's a bit like Judas sold Jesus. Working closely with the religious leaders, Matthew chapter 27, starting from verse 16, it says, And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For, check it, he knew, that is Pilate, he knew that they had handed him over. Why? Because of envy. Ain't nothing new under the sun. While, verse 9, he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent to him saying, You know what, hubby, don't have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. But God was with him. God was with him. God was with Jesus when those who delivered him up because of envy, God was with Jesus. God was with Joseph who in similar fashion was delivered up by his own brothers. Why? Because of envy. But you know what? God was with him. What? Even though he was rejected by his brothers? Yes. What? Even though they betrayed Joseph and handed him over to the Gentiles? Yes. Just like the scribes and the Pharisees gave Jesus over to Pilate, Yes, God was with him. Leaders of Israel rejecting Joseph. The same way leaders of Israel rejected Jesus. You leaders. Can you see the parallel? And this rejection with Joseph and Jesus was the first time. And Joseph said, you know what, I had a dream. And you're all going to bow down to me like the sheaves including mom and dad. And like the stars bowed down, to, you lot are going to all do that. And they were like, what? Jesus said, you're going to see me, the son of man, seated next to the right hand of glory. They were like, what? What they do? The first time he's rejected. But God was with him. Verse 10, and... Being with him, delivered him out of all, not some, all his troubles and gave him, that is Joseph, favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see what happens when God is with you? When God is with you, it don't matter who's against you. If God is for you, who can be against you? But they said, if God is against you, you're finished. Favor, wisdom, delivered him out of all his troubles. And look, in the presence now of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Joseph went from tribulation to worse tribulation to great tribulation, getting accused of rape and falsely so and thrown into prison. And you can see him. 17 years of drama without a glimmer of light. And overnight, overnight, Joseph goes from a shave and a shower and a prison dungeon to becoming one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. You can't, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged, regardless of what you're going through. And we see Joseph... We see Joseph embraced, not by his own, first of all by the Gentiles, Pharaoh, right? Which is interesting. We see Joseph rejected by his own, but notice now how he's exalted to the highest authority in the land. Now verse 11, it says, Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. Notice what happens this time around. Verse 13. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. And it is at this point... That Joseph, what, he reveals himself to his brothers, right? And at this time, the second time, verse 13, they accept him. Israel, by and large, even today, failed to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Since, at his first coming. And you know what? The Lord is going to use something quite terrible called thalipsis. And thalipsis is the word that, in another language, commonly describes the time of great tribulation. The Jews, they didn't, they didn't accept Christ the first time he came. So this time of thalipsis, that which the book of Revelation calls the time of Jacob's trouble, sorry, Daniel, Cause a time of Jacob's trouble is a time when God is gonna, is gonna, is gonna, is gonna cause His people, the Jews, to go for a very, very difficult time. A time that you know, with regard to those who consider the rapture and the timing of the rapture, depending on your position, will determine you know your perspective. If you're pre-trib, what you believe is that. We will get out of here before that time of thalipsis, before that time of difficulty. If you're mid-trib, then you will believe that you're going to go through some of the heat and you'll get out halfway through. If you're post-trib, you believe that you're going to go through that whole time of tribulation and you're going to get out at the end. I say get out. I mean, what's the purpose? You've been through it, right? The position that we hold, we teach all of them, but, but the position that we hold is, is none of those. It's what, what has been termed as pre-wrath. And what we suggest is that we will go through some of the drama. So, Rainier, we will tell you to brace yourself. 
for the tribulation. If you're pre-trib, you're like, no, man, I'm, I'm not hearing, I'm not feeling that. It's all good. We can deliberate this over a cup of coffee. <laughs> you know what I mean? But we say pre-wrath, meaning we're going to get out of here just before God pours out his wrath, which we see distinguished between tribulation and the pouring out of his wrath. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, Then, speaking of Israel, then they will eventually recognize Jesus. That's when he comes at the end of that time of great difficulty. The Jews will eventually recognize Jesus. But when will it be? At his first coming? Nah, at his second coming. They will look on me. Check it. That's an allusion to the deity of Christ. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn at that time. It's going to be a terrible time. Verse 15. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem or Shem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Stephen now says, Your Honor, no further questions with regard to my second witness. Thank you, Joseph. You can now step down from the witness stand. Now, Stephen calls for, draws for another deliverer, whose name is who? Moses. And he follows the same line of questioning. Moses will also reiterate the same issue highlighted by Joseph. Now, I know that this is a bit deep and theological today, but I beg you to stick with me. This is good for us. Milk to meat. We drink meat when we're baby Christians, but then we have to progress and move on to, to chewing meat, right? If you're a new Christian, it's all good. You can just lick the gravy off this one, right? But for the older believers, you know what I mean? Let's, let's try and get our teeth into, you know what I'm saying, doctrine. Now, Stephen calls for Moses. Now, Moses is going to reiterate the same issue highlighted by Joseph. Abraham had a son called Isaac, you know, who also had a son called, who is Isaac's son? Come on now. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had the guy who walked with a limp, Jacob, right? Who now has, this Jacob now has 12 sons who have begun to have their own children. Jacob has his name changed to what? To Israel. And these 12 sons of Jacob are now known as the 12 sons of Israel. They have become a small clan, soon to be known as the 12 tribes of Israel, totaling approximately at this point 75 people. Verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Now at this point in the story, nearly 430 years have passed, and this small tribe have become a nation, numbering a few million. Verse 18, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people, says Stephen, as he pleads with the council. And he says, and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born. 
and, well, as, and was well pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, because remember, Pharaoh had all of the children slaughtered. Pharaoh's daughter picked him up in a basket and took him away and brought him up as her own son. It's amazing how the Lord just preserved his life right in the lap of Lucifer. He says, and Moses, verse 22, listen to this verse. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when you hear Moses 40 years or a little bit later on in his life, you'd be like, wait a minute, is this the same person? Because remember, Moses was like, I can't speak. We'll have to come back and look a little bit more closely at verse 22 another time. Verse 23, now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, that is the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For verse 25, he supposed that his brethren, the Jews, would have understood that God would what? Deliver them by his hand. Moses is like, yo, I'm, 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 I'm the deliverer. Moses had a sense of God's calling in his life at this point. And Moses is like, I'm your man. If anyone can, it's me. God has sent me to deliver. But they don't understand. They did not recognize Moses as a deliverer. At his first coming. Can you see it? It would be 40 years later in his second coming to them that they would realize. Verse 26. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting. <laughs> and tried to reconcile them saying, men and brethren, come on now. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him. That is Moses pushed him away saying, who made you, uh, wait a minute, it's like they got beef right and a guy turns around from the guy he's got, and he turns around to Moses, you ever had that? You're trying to split up a fight sometimes, <laughs> go get yourself in hot water. It says in Proverbs something that, but don't pull a dog by its tail. Don't fasten things that are not your business. Sometimes, sometimes there's a need for it, right? Because apparently I hear about stuff happening on trains and people getting robbed and that and people just sitting down reading their paper like, nah, that's a difficult call to go jump and get involved in something like that. But hey, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Excuse me. What you, why? What are you going to do? You're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday. It's like somehow I don't think so. I don't know. Then, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. You'd be like, you know, sometimes you sense that God's got a call in your life. And then you get into a situation or circumstances that question whether or not, yeah, you're really called. Whether or not really God has put that on your heart. Whether or not God has really been leading you down this road. And you feel like, man, well, I don't even really know now. Well, 
Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes God's call is valid, but it's not now. It's a bit later on. It's like marriage. You feel like, man, I know I ain't called to be single, but, but where's my wife? <laughs> you know what I mean? Where's my husband? You know you're not called to be single. You know that God has got something for you, but guess what? It just ain't right now. And you just got to be patient in that. And there's confusion in that. And Moses runs away. And he can't figure out what's going on. But does that make the call in his life any less valid? Regardless of where you might be in your life, does it make the call of God on your life any less valid? You've got to trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. But in all of your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. Moses goes to live in Midian. And he has two sons. This great and powerful and mighty man. Who thought he was the deliverer. He was actually a murderer. I mean he's really messed up now. Oh my gosh. How you deal with that? Like ah, oh, I fought God. And I knew my birth was special. And, but now I'm a murderer. Pharaoh who brought me up. I can't go back there. They will take my head off. Talk about confusion. Imagine Moses. Imagine if he was dis discouraged to the point where he took his own life. Imagine if Moses was discouraged to the point where he just gave up. Well, Moses had a savior. And just like many of us, even in them times where you can't even keep yourself, God keeps you by his grace. Amen. Verse 23 to 29, you see Moses rejected at his first coming, but then four decades later, hey. <laughs> four it, someone said that it took God one day to get Moses out of Egypt but it took God 40 years to get Egypt out of Moses. Four decades later, verse 30, and when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Talk about at the point where, you know what? He probably ain't even thinking anymore about the call of God and them ungrateful Jews that he left behind. In the wilderness, you know. Very often that's where the Lord will come and meet you. Don't be discouraged. In the wilderness of Mount Sinai, when Moses saw... And check it, he's at Mount Sinai. He's at the very place, living, yeah? At the very place where God is actually going to take him years later with now this rabble of a group of people. Very often the Lord will take you some places where eventually you're going to end up kind of going back to. So don't despise those places. Learn from those moments. Say, Lord, you know, why am I here in this wilderness? I hate it. It's terrible. It's dry. It's hot in the daytime. It's freezing at night. And it's lonely. Why am I here? Well, you're there for a reason. You're there for a purpose. I remember my mom dragging me to Jamaica against my will. 25 years ago 
hated it. I didn't want to go to Jamaica. At 17, why would I want to go and live? It's all right to visit. Hey. But to live? And at 25 years later, I look back and I see, wow. If you don't know, I'm one of those who are getting ready to go and live in Jamaica permanently where we're aiming to plant a church. Don't despise the wilderness. It's all about perspective. It says, this bush burning. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Verse 34, I have surely seen the oppression of my people, even though they don't think I did, and you definitely didn't think I did, Moses. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now watch verse 35. Now this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. God's timing is perfect. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea, using Moses particularly, and in the wilderness, 40 more years for Moses. 40 years now for them, but 40 more years for Moses. Stephen says, this is that Moses, the one who you say I speak against. I suggest that actually he is the one who speaks against you, Pharisees. Because the elders, they rejected Moses, the deliverer, in the same way that you have rejected Jesus, the deliverer. And you continue to reject him. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. I'm trying to show you stuff that you already know. But you won't listen to me. And the fact is, you won't even listen to Moses. Listen to verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear, quote in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Who do you think Moses was talking about? Stephen could, could be appealing now to the council. Who do you think Moses was talking about? You know the verse, you can quote it verbatim. Some of you probably taught it last Sabbath in the synagogue. Who do you think Moses was talking about? Who is this prophet that Moses makes mention of? It's the very same one that you rejected at his first coming. 
but evidently will recognize at his second coming. Moses says, don't elevate me out of measure. I'm not the culmination of all things. Verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. You, Sanhedrin, are just like your fathers. And in their hearts they turn back to Egypt. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I love the King James. We what not has become of him. And they made, check it, verse 41. They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. The children of Israel made idols. Religious idols, to be sure, but they made idols. You are just like your fathers because you, leaders of Israel, modern-day leaders of Israel, you have made similar idols. They turned away from the living God and turned to idols. They made a golden calf, Moloch, Remphan. Even, check it, 400 years after Moses had died, do you remember the, the, the bronze serpent on the stick that he set up when the people were stung by, bitten by snakes and they had to look at the bronze serpent? 400 years after Moses had died, they kept that bronze serpent that they had made, burning incense to it, and they worshipped it, calling it Nehushtan. Worshipping the... You know, that, that symbol is what the National Health Service used for their symbol. Interesting, isn't it? You worship similar idols like your fathers who were in the wilderness. You ain't no different. Having me up in the court when you should be in the court because you worship similar idols like the temple. We're going to see it in a minute. You worship the law. You worship icons like Abraham and Moses. You're just like your fathers who didn't know God. Verse 42 then, God turned and gave them up because of this idol worship to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you, offend, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You, like it was genuine. It wasn't genuine. It wasn't me you were worshipping. You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship. And you know what? Based on that, I'm going to carry you away beyond Babylon to a place where they know how to worship idols. Because that's what you want, right? Just like when they wanted meat. God says, I'm providing bread. We don't want this manna no more. We're tired of that. We want meat. God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. And he gives it to them until it's coming out of their nostrils. Until they're sick of it. You want to worship idols? Fine. Let's take you to the home of idol worship, Babylon. And you're going to get all that comes with that, which ain't so great. If you're ever 
put in a place where you have to choose between God and the devil. Because that's the choice, right? There ain't no gray area. God or the devil, heaven or hell, inside or outside, going up or down, choose carefully. Because ultimately, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you reject God, God will ultimately give you what you desire. And he'll give it to you in an eternal sense. Choose carefully and choose wisely. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. Remember the tabernacle? Transportable tent it was. As he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Because there's a tabernacle on earth, but there's also a tabernacle in heaven. And God says, I want you to build it just like this, similar to the one that's in heaven. He appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern. Verse 45, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. A dwelling for the God of Jacob. Somewhere for God to live. Verse 47, but Solomon built him a house. Next witness. Who is it? Solomon. Solomon built God a house. Now that really is supposed to make us laugh. Solomon built God a house. Initially it was a transportable tent or the tabernacle of Moses in verse 44 that then became what under David slash Solomon's reign? What did the tabernacle transition into? The temple. Oh, you guys make me feel lonely. The temple. Verse, four, verse 48. However, the Most High, this is why we're supposed to laugh, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. You're going to build God a house. <laughs> supposed to slap your knee in. The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. And Stephen's point is, God doesn't dwell in man-made tents or buildings. So let's not be enamored with the building. Oh, I'm looking for Calvary Chapel, South London. What? You know, that church. Oh, yeah, the church is down the road and it's on the corner as you turn right onto the main road. Oh, what, the building with the spire? Oh, yeah, that's the church. No, that's not the church. The word church, it means ecclesia. It means assembly. It's the people. It's not the building. It's the people. You know, some individuals are, are enamored with buildings. You need buildings. But you don't move into a building and rinse the people out just to pay for this glorified building so you can say, oh, well, our building... I'm going to get myself in trouble again. Amen. All right. <clears throat> God said to David, you want to build me a house, David? <laughs> well, David, you know what? That is such a wonderful desire. And I can see in your heart you want to do something blessed. But no. I don't want you to build me a house. You know what, David? Furthermore, I'm going to build you a house. 
I'm going to build you a house. But it's not going to be a brick-built brick built physical structure. I'm going to build you a house, but I'm going to build you a spiritual house. Forevermore, I'm going to build your son, your descendant, a house. The son of David, I'm going to build a house. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 describes this house. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, speaking of the believers, that's us. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's not concerned about a brick building as glorious as the temple was when Solomon constructed it to the point where the fire of God fell and the, the priest couldn't even stand up to minister, remember? But it was for that particular moment in time. It'd be like, God's not going to be impressed with you if you go out there and build an ark. Because that's not for now. That was for then. God is enamored with this temple, the spiritual temple, because it's in this temple he dwells. Never elevate things, objects, statues, monuments, buildings, candles, people, priests, the Pope. Don't elevate these things. That's religion. God is concerned with relationship, not religion. And the Lord Jesus, a few weeks earlier, had predicted the destruction of the second temple because it was developed after Solomon had built it. Jesus predicted the full, complete destruction. Not one, look at the building. Hey, it's heavy. Look at the temples. Yeah, don't watch that. Every stone is going to be knocked down. The destruction of the beloved temple, unbeknown to these leaders. And then a few years later, we see in 70 AD, the Romans under Nero decimated the temple. The temple that they worshipped to their horror. As the prophet Isaiah says, which is the last witness that Stephen calls upon, heaven is my throne, says the Lord, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? We're supposed to worship the creator, not the created. Amen? Now Stephen seals his watertight case with a closing statement. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. You'd be like, ain't these, ain't these, ain't the Sanhedrin tired of hearing this? 
You who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. The message pierced through the center of their being, traveling straight to the heart. Do you understand that these are the 71 most powerful men in the nation of Israel? And as we said a few weeks ago, it's the grace of God at work that they can hear this same message again. The Holy Spirit endeavoring to bring them to a place of repentance. And Stephen turns the whole trial upside down. They had brought him in to put him on trial. And he has with surgical precision used the scriptures to put them on trial. And they know it. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. They were exceedingly enraged, to say the least. Verse 55, but he, being full of the spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing where he normally what? Sits. I see the Son of Man standing, so much to talk about and not enough time, standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, la, 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 and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They marched him out of the city in the same way that, that they did the Lord Jesus a few months ago. And guess who's standing there watching? One of the men who had dragged him before the court in the first place, possibly. And the witnesses laid down their clothes as they took off their outer garments to do their thing. They laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who is unconverted at this point, but will later on become the Apostle Paul. Isn't it funny how Saul isn't involved directly. How come Saul ain't drawing for bricks? Interesting. It makes you wonder if something is already beginning to go on in his heart. How about the others? The synagogue of the freed men. Well, they needed to be hurling stones at Stephen because based on the law of Moses, the accusers were to be the very ones who performed the stoning. Remember the Lord Jesus with the woman caught in an act of adultery. He who is without sin cast the first stone. You're out here chatting about this woman. How about you? Well, if you're not guilty, you, you be the first one to throw the sin, you accuser. The Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. If that's you always pointing a finger, you know, the Bible says we need to judge, but we need to judge righteous judgment. We don't have the liberty of saying, you ain't got no hope, you're going to hell. 
I'm not even going to bother share the gospel with you no more. We can't judge people in that sense. We need to point out the wrong. We need to point out the error. But we can't judge people in an ultimate sense. I suspect that Saul isn't throwing any stones at this moment. Because I think the word of the Lord was like a dagger in his heart. Because later on, when Paul has his Damascus Road experience, one of the things that the Lord says to him is, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads or the pricks? That's what they used to, remember when they used to drive the oxen, they'd have a stick with a little kind of whip on the end with bits of maybe metal or bone, and they would whip the ox with this whip this gold or this prick and it would hurt and it would encourage them to move in the direction they're supposed to the lord says to Saul, why are you why are you firming it paul that's what he says later on right Saul. so i'm wondering if he's standing there thinking something about this ain't right and i don't feel yeah, 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 look, just bring your coats and drop. I'll look out, I'll make sure if no one don't touch your phone. Don't worry, I've got everything here in your wallet, safe. But really what he's saying is, I can't get involved in this. Because something's going on in his heart and the Lord says, why are you firming it? You may be here today, let me ask you. The Lord's been trying to apprehend you. And you know it. Why are you firming it? Well, maybe you're resisting for the same reason these guys resisted. Which is because of pride. I wonder if Gamaliel, who we met a week or two ago, I wonder if Gamaliel was involved in the stoning. Possibly. But it seems like maybe God was doing something in his heart. Maybe he's standing up next to Paul. We have to remember... That Gamaliel was Paul's mentor. It's all conjecture. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The same thing that his Lord and Master had said when he was on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Verse 60, then he knelt down and cried out he didn't whisper this he cried out just again like jesus did when he was on the cross cried out with a loud voice lord so that they could hear this and it's the voice of the spirit and it calls to us it calls to you if you're like saul firm in it and you know you can be an unbeliever and be firm in it but you know you can be a believer and firm it Are you where the Lord wants you to be as a believer? He cries out and hear the cry. Same cry from the Lord Jesus. Do not charge them with this sin. The Lord doesn't want to hold your sin against you. But when you firm it, he has no choice. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And every one of them heard it including Saul of Tarsus. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That means he died. Very often, 
when you begin to talk about tribulation, times of difficulty, persecution, the question comes up, man, psh, if I was ever put, put in that kind of situation, I wonder if I'd be able to hold out. I wonder if I'd be able to hold up under torture. We don't have time. But this can be an encouragement to us. If you are ever put in a predicament like that, you just have to trust that the Lord, in the same way that he got Stephen through it, will get you through it. The impression you get is that he was at complete peace in the midst of this terrible stoning. Complete peace. What a powerful witness. One that would have had an immense effect on the life of Saul of Tarsus. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Some say that this was a waste of a life. Would you agree? How does this affect you? Can you resist the spirit and the wisdom by which Stephen spoke today? Are you kicking against and hostile to and wrestling off the spirit of God? Well, you will only end up causing injury to yourself. Temporarily and possibly eternally. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Father, we... are amazed that, Lord, the, the complexity of your word. I stand in awe, Lord, of that which has been catalogued. And I see how evident and how important it is for us to give your word our attention. Because you have so much to communicate. And, Lord, we have so much to learn Thank you, Lord, that today we see your grace again in action. Your love, your mercy toward these wicked men, Lord, who time and time and time again resist you and stiff arm your spirit. And you continue to pour out mercy. Thank you, Lord, that those of us today, Lord, who are in that same place, Lord, in sin, and we know it, just like they knew it, Lord, I pray that our response wouldn't be one of antagonism toward you, holding up our, and shaking our fist at you, blaspheming and taking your name in vain, lying, stealing, committing adultery and fornication, spitting in your face and in the face of your sacrifice, your loving sacrifice for our sins. Lord, I pray that Your grace would work in us to the point where, Lord, it causes us to be humbled. And that we would respond, Lord, as we will go on to see in, in, in the next few weeks how Paul the Apostle responds, Lord, which is the only response, which is to fall to our knees and say, Lord, who are you? What would you have me to do in the light of who you are? And that you would begin to Reveal your will and your purpose and your plan, just like you did for Moses. Just like you did for Joseph. Just like you did for Abraham, Jacob, for Isaac. 
And just like you did, Father, for Stephen. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand and appreciate and embrace your will for our lives. In order that, like Stephen, we may bring glory and honor and not shame to your name. Father, help us by the power of your spirit, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.